So welcome to the Monash uh, Perioperative Medicine podcast. My name is Dr. Simon Hendel and I'm uh, going to be talking to you today about perioperative fasting. We're very lucky to be joined by uh, Dr. Jonathan Nicholson, uh, who's a staff specialist anaesthetist at the Alfred and, and uh, has a special interest in, in ERAS, among other things. So welcome, Johnny. Um, I might just get the ball rolling by asking why it is that we actually fast for surgery. Well, we've known now for well, several decades, even really from Mendelssohn's work in 1946, uh, the significant sequelae that occur if a patient aspirates. Now, um, he looked at obstetric population and found that patients who aspirated went through uh, a process of hypoxia, um, an inflammatory response if it was uh, if there was an acid aspiration, uh, but also could if it was particulate matter may even have hypoxia related to obstruction, um, and it relate it, it resulted in quite significant morbidity and mortality, and since then we've really uh, been cautious in that uh, trying to prevent such severe consequence from anesthesia and so uh, it's essentially been expert opinion for a long period of time and studies looking at uh, gastric residual volumes um, to decide upon the fasting guidelines that we have today. Thanks Johnny. So everyone seems pretty comfortable with the idea that um, pulmonary aspiration is a bad thing and mm. something that should be avoided uh, in the perioperative period and, and certainly uh, as anesthesia is induced. Um, can you give us an indication as to why and perhaps a background into some of the evidence base for why it is that we've then developed the fasting guidelines that we've developed? So it seems clear from various um, animal models and experimental um, data that particulate matter is particularly bad to, um, mm -hmm. to aspirate, um, clear fluids less so and that clear fluids clear a bit faster. So we know that for solid food, we should, we, the guidelines are suggesting a six hour fast. Um, and then perhaps two hours for clear fluids. Can you give us an indication as to why those, those particular time limits have come about? Yeah, so uh, there's been in, uh, various studies over the years and essentially what they're doing is uh, looking at the residual volume uh, within the stomach after an ingestion of a meal. Now, it's come to six hours as the point at which we say uh, is a safe period of time for gastric emptying. Now, um, that isn't uh, absolute and finite for every single meal. For example, if you have a light breakfast, they describe as a, a study's done, and had just some toast uh, and coffee, then that would clear in about 210 minutes, about three and a half hours. Whereas if you end up having a heavy, heavy, high fat meal, then that actually probably takes up to about eight hours to clear. So it is on a spectrum. However, if you have a standard guideline to give to patients, then six hours is sensible and safe. And for a long period of time, uh, that was also deemed to be the period of time that we shouldn't eat or drink. And so um, it was actually uh, only the, the study done by Matsby in 1986, where he really felt that was it actually deemed necessary for clear fluids to also be six hours? And he found that, um, in fact, if you measured the residual gastric volume um, after ingesting some uh, clear fluids, uh, it made no difference three hours before surgery. So from there, we've then progressed to, to say, well, if a patient can have clear fluids, um, they can have those up to two hours prior to surgery. 
The great challenge that we have as anaesthetists is to try and relay that information to patients. Uh, and you can talk to the, the man in the street and ask them how long before a surgery should they not have food or drink, and they'll say maybe six hours or fast from midnight or whatever. Very few people will be confident to drink some water, certainly orange juice, um, the morning of surgery and up to two hours prior to surgery because the fear is that they'll get their operation cancelled. But we know that this is key for these patients, particularly those undergoing high-risk uh, major surgery, to come in not dehydrated, but actually um, potentially in a, in, a, in, a, in a fed state if you have a carbohydrate drink, but certainly in a hydrated state. Johnny, you, you touch on, a, on, an, on an important and interesting and I guess a, a relatively topical point uh, when you mentioned carbohydrate drinks. Um, there is a move in, in certain um, parts of perioperative practice uh, to encourage people who are fasting for surgery uh, to take clear fluids that contain um, uh, carbohydrates of some, some mm -hmm. sort, often maltodextrin. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, the move for that is to, the, or the reason or the rationale for that is to uh, try and minimise some of the effects of the, the starvation effects that go with prolonged fasting. What's, uh, what's your take or interpretation of the evidence available to support or not support uh, the practice of implementing carbohydrate drinks in the preoperative period? Yeah, so I think it's a, a difficult one. Um, as we discussed earlier, it is a rare complication to have uh, aspiration. Um, and so what we want to make sure is, first of all, it, it's safe to have carbohydrate drink. The concern is if you add sugars or, or uh, other stuff to um, water that it could actually change the, the gastric emptying time. Now th there is clear evidence to show it is safe. So it is safe to have as a clear fluid two hours before surgery and it's generally given in as a maltodextran. Now that's a 12% carbohydrate. Um, a lot of uh, other research in another sector in sports medicine that's looked at um, various sports drinks for athletes, um, they use about 8% um, carbohydrate drinks and they, they actually empty as fast as water and that, that is actually quite quick. They can empty it around about 150 mils within about 10 to 15 minutes. So I think the only clear evidence we've got is it's probably safe. Um, what is difficult to do, and this is the true for all enhanced recovery steps, is to prove any one individual step um, impacts significantly on outcome. And because the way enhanced recovery protocols work, they are a combination of steps which add together to produce an outcome which is better than not using enhanced recovery. And these are numerous steps. It's up to 20 to 25 steps within a pathway. And to isolate one particular step to say it's this gives clear benefit in length of stay, uh, reduction in complications, I think it's really difficult to do. And there, but there's not to say people haven't tried and there are studies out there certainly to try and um, look at that and suggesting that actually maybe there's a faster return of bowel function when carbohydrate drinks are being used. Um, and also uh, uh, if you want to measure something, potentially reduced insulin resistance is the thing to measure. So, measure. so maybe a reduced stress response to surgery. So the it, what we know probably at the moment is that there probably is a benefit. We can't say for sure, but there certainly is no harm. 
Uh, I mean, in terms of other benefits, I guess you have less hangry patients on the surgical ward. Yeah. Uh, certainly less uh, less patients. You may have greater patient satisfaction. Is that yep. a reasonable um, endpoint to measure? Do you think for this sort of this sort of study or, or this sort of um, practice? A absolutely. And um, for carbohydrate drinks. Um, you, you, you would, we know that for water, for example, then you do get people, if they're allowed to drink uh, and they're given water prior to surgery and they're not dehydrated, then you know that we know that they are better patient satisfaction scores. And so I think it would be fair to translate that over to carbohydrate drinks as well. I think what we want to know is probably that uh, we, we are um, adding to the value of the uh, ERAS pathway because there is a cost associated with having these carbohydrate drinks and there is a growing body of evidence to suggest that it is actually probably a benefit to have as part of the ERAS pathway. Is there any evidence that you're aware of that suggests that there's a cost benefit to having carbohydrate drinks supplemented um, that, uh, in that, that it actually in other areas reduces cost and therefore becomes uh, a cost effective way of providing um, changing patients from the starving state to the fed state uh, in the preoperative um, space? Well, no, I, not as far as I'm aware to, uh, to any cost analysis, but certainly if you prevent any complication, if you reduce any length of stay, that all translates into significant cost saving for what is really quite a low cost intervention, um, really in, the, in, the, in terms of the whole patient pathway. Providing these carbohydrate drinks is relatively cheap. Sort of in the order of a, you know, a dollar a bottle or something like yeah, that? Yeah. Okay. And I mean, I guess that sort of begs the question of, well, if, if water's good and we're exploring as a professional group whether or not carbohydrate drinks are good in the um, preoperative um, fasting patient, is, there any, is that because there's a genuine risk to fasting or starving patients? Um, I think that what we want to know, what, what, what we, the difficulty for us is to relay the information to patients and to get them to follow the information without risking the cancellation of surgery. And I think that's the challenge for us to um, effectively uh, get the information to the patients so that when they're at home, maybe just before they're leaving home to come to uh, hospital for their elective surgery, that they're confident enough and they have the clear direction to then have their carbohydrate drink or their or the water. I think that what we have to try and do is break a, a well, um, I think a well ingrained belief is that we, we fast for midnight and that's a ch the real challenge for us. Um, and this isn't necessarily only related to um, elective patients, we also maybe have a benefit in emergency patients um, who are frequently undergoing some surgeries which may have been cancelled because of availability and then are left on uh, wards which for prolonged periods without food or drink and even having an, a, a system in place to facilitate them being on the emergency list but then be able to inform the patients or the ward that the patient will be coming down in two hours time it would allow us to let patients have uh, water or carbohydrate drinks um, right up into two hours and that has surely got to enhance patient experience. Um, Johnny I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up and ask maybe one or two more mm. questions but, but particularly um, I guess what we've been focusing our discussion on at the moment has been in the elective surgical population where you can within reason time when it is that patients are going to get access to the operating theatre. Um, you mentioned in your, your last response about the patient who ends up on the emergency list who's been fasting and then often bumped and then often persistently fasting or having prolonged fasting, which is a big problem.
problem both for the hospital uh, and for the patient. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that there's um, scope for um, improving uh, the, the way that, part, that, that fasting or starving patients are managed in the emergency population? So perhaps um, could you make a comment about whether or not um, patients in having emergency or semi-urgent semi surgery um, can, can also be included in this type of ERAS approach mm -hmm. um, to perioperative fasting? Yeah, I mean, it's a different patient population and one that we have to be careful with. Um, it's, it is a significant uh, risk factor being an emergency patient for having uh, aspiration. And indeed, looking at the National Audit Project done in the UK, 50% um, of, uh, of complications, airway complications, were caused by aspiration. And we know that emergency surgery um, increases the risk, such as the studies done in the 90s by Warner found that it was around a rate of around 1 in 900 patients compared to about 1 in 3,800 patients for elective surgery. So it, it, these patients are higher risk. I think it's important to select the patients that would be suitable for oral hydration uh, preoperative. Uh, preoperatively, um, and I don't necessarily think that's suitable for all. For example, uh, anyone with a, an acute abdomen, um, we also have to take into consideration patients with major trauma who may have also had um, significant amounts of opiates, may um, have had a, a big meal prior to their trauma. So there's all these different factors which we do have to ensure that while wanting to make sure that patients are hydrated and um, uh, and, and also happy and uh, content on the ward and not being, having prolonged st starving periods, that we don't put them at increased risk by trying to hydrate or, f or, or, or reduce their fasting times. But having said that, there are many patients who are on emergency lists, for example, for plastics procedures, minor plastic procedures, which um, we should be trying to make sure that they are not having fasting fluids, but they're actually having oral fluids. For the reason that, what, what is, what's the actual issue with pr that prolonged fasting? So, you know, let's say someone fasts from midnight as often ends up happening for patients who end up on, you know, late morning or early afternoon lists. Yes, it means that they fast for longer than current guidelines, but they still get their operation and usually would go back to having a normal diet soon after. Mm. What's the issue for um, patients from a sort of physiological or, or perioperative medical sense um, if they have that prolonged persistent fasting? What happens to people when they starve um, you know, or have prolonged fasting? Well, we, we know that they will go into a, a, I guess it depends on the, 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 the size of the surgery they're about to have, but people go into a catabolic state. Now, often a lot of our emergency patients are elderly. They may well be um, have comorbidities, potentially diabetics, who also will have issues with sugars. Um, and even if you have a fit and well patient up on the ward, if you prolong fast them, we're going to then have to have an IV cannula in situ um, attached up to a drip, reduce their mobilization around the ward. Uh, we're giving them non-physiological salt solutions rather than uh, just water, which um, going in through the normal way that the body's used to is surely a better way to manage patients um, than, than having prolonged fasting and what was deemed to use as fasting fluids, which I think in many uh, circumstances isn't required. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank um, you. And thanks uh, to everyone for listening to the Perioperative Medicine podcast.